Queer Here, Queer There is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Ganyagahaga people, a site that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hey everyone, Noah here, and welcome to Queer Here, Queer There. So just to give you a little bit more of a background about who I am and my podcast and my project, everything like that, I thought I'd just give you a little bit of an introduction. Uh, so for starters, I am a recent graduate from McGill University where I completed a degree in urban studies and psychology, uh, but right now I am currently working for the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness, which is essentially a think tank research center nonprofit that looks at how social isolation and social connectedness manifest in a bunch of different areas. Uh, so for me, I'm looking specifically at how social isolation manifests within queer spaces and queer community. So that's my current project, and as part of that project, I'm going to be producing this podcast series, obviously, Queer Here, Queer There, that is going to look at the history, the disappearance, the decline, the problems that queer faces, uh, mainly focusing on Montreal and what they are facing here. As part of my work this summer, I am partnered with a planning firm in the United Kingdom called Our Place Sustainable Developments, and they do a bunch of really, really interesting placemaking and really community-focused uh, urban design and urban planning projects, so the perfect partner for this project. So really, what this project is about and what inspired me for this project was, I actually read this article by the Huffington Post called The Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. Essentially, it really hit me hard. and. Every time I go back and read that article, it's always like basically like opening a fresh wound again. It's really impactful and it really made me think about how prevalent this is and how I am not alone in these feelings of loneliness and how that intersects with my identity uh, as a queer man. Um, so I really encourage you to read that. It really gave me the inspiration for this project and uh, what I wanted to do going forward with this project is kind of take those lessons learned and the information from that article and all the research I've done over the past six weeks and kind of bring it into a forward-looking, more positive thing of what we can do to preserve queer spaces to kind of fight loneliness within the queer community. Uh, and as part of that, I've talked to a lot of people in my research, including um, a bunch of research participants, so that just is basically queer people, asking them about their perceptions of queer space, and we will be hearing from some of them in this podcast. But I've also interviewed a lot of experts on queer spaces, mental health, that are very, very, very at the top of their field on this subject. So, for instance, in the trailer, I mentioned Walt Odets. So Walt Odets is a psychologist who's been working as a psychotherapist in the San Francisco area, uh, but he's also written a couple, uh, written a couple books uh, for about 30 years. So he's extremely knowledgeable and he was practicing throughout the HIV AIDS epidemic. And it was insightful to speak with him and his books are really, really incredible as well. So just to give you a little bit more of a roadmap about this podcast specifically, probably going to be, I haven't really decided yet, three or four episodes, just so it's pretty short over the summer, but I would love to continue it in the future. Uh, so just to give everyone a heads up, this podcast primarily focuses on queer issues, which might be sensitive to some people, and this podcast also discusses sex pretty freely, so keep that in mind if you're listening around kids or you're just not really that comfortable about it. I just want to give a really big disclaimer. So for starters, researching queer spaces in general, it's pretty under-researched, even if you're thinking about just gay man spaces, and it gets even more and more scarce when you're looking at things like lesbian spaces or trans spaces. 
trans people remain categorically understudied in almost all aspects of academia, which makes it extremely hard to put together any type of compre comprehensive history of trans accepting spaces in Montreal, but I really did try my best. And as for lesbian spaces, there will be a little bit of a segue, but again, so understudied and not really well known. So if you have any resources about any of these two topics, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could send it to me. I would help with my research as well as adapting this podcast to try to be as inclusive as possible. So just to give a little bit more of an information about this episode, so this episode we are going to be looking at queer spaces. Um, so, or sorry, the history of queer spaces, especially in Montreal. So most of us queers have probably heard of uh, the Stonewall Inn and the Stonewall riots that happened in 1969, so 50 years ago. Um, World Pride is actually happening this month uh, in New York City to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Inn riots. Um, but if you haven't and you have no idea what Stonewall is, I would really strongly recommend the documentary that just came out a couple weeks ago from the LGBT Center of New York City. Um, it's called Stonewall Forever, and it really puts it all into perspective in terms of what the actual meaning of these riots are. And I'll put the link to that video in the description. It's just on YouTube, and it was incredibly moving. So as I'm based in Montreal and have lived here for the past four years, I mainly want to focus on the queer history of Montreal because it's obviously not something that's taught at schools, at least not the schools that I went to. And so this episode is really going to focus on trying to elucidate kind of a pretty murky history that isn't really well known uh, amongst queer people, but definitely not amongst straight people as well. And I also want to acknowledge that this podcast will be focusing mainly on post-colonial spaces. And the pure reason for that is because there's such a lack of written information and academia on pre-colonial queer history. If you have any sources, please let me know. Again, I am open to learning about this and I want to include this as much as possible in my podcast and my project going forward. So I'd really appreciate if you have any information on that to please let me know. What I did find uh, is actually just a little excerpt about queer history from the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, and they do have some information about queerness uh, prior to colonization, mainly that the Indigenous peoples on Turtle Island recognized three to up to five genders, so that includes men, women, two-spirited men, two-spirited women, and trans people. And the words used to describe these identities were as diverse as the languages spoken across the continent. So researching for this podcast was honestly a lot of fun, uh, and even after living here for four years, I almost knew none of this, uh, so hopefully I can enlighten you throughout the next 30-45 minutes. Welcome to Montreal Queer History 101. So the first recorded queer incident, I'm putting incident in air quotes, happened in 1648 when the city was basically a tiny little outpost. So some historical records showed that a military drummer with the French garrison of the city was charged with committing quote-unquote the worst of crimes and sentenced to death after being caught having sex with a man in a field outside of the outpost of Montreal. Ross Higgins of the Quebec Gay Archive said that Quote, the drummer's life was spared after Jesuits in Quebec City intervened on his behalf, and he was given a choice by the Roman Catholic Bishop of Quebec, die or become the colony's first executioner. Could you imagine that? One minute you're having like probably good sex in the field, and the next you're basically being forced to chop people's heads off? Like, unfathomable to me. 
But the next kind of incident recorded was in 1701, and this is before the French signed a multilateral peace, again in air quotes, treaty with 38 North American indigenous groups at the inaugural meeting of First Nations in 1701 in Montreal. So what happened was that two soldiers and their lieutenant, Nicolas Dossi de Saint-Michel, were caught having a threesome. Yes, a threesome. So nonetheless, a gay threesome. So first of all, a threesome in 1701 was probably revolutionary. It probably would have blown some minds. But a gay threesome must have left the people of Montreal literally quaking. They were thrown into prison and all charged with sodomy. The soldiers were sentenced to prison and Dossi was fined. Uh, and he was banished from New France forever. And so at around this time, the laws were pretty shaky and very selective. You could basically do whatever you want. But technically, pre-Confederation, homosexuality or sodomy was punishable by death in Canada. And here's where it gets a little bit more difficult. So there's actually, I couldn't find anything else that had to deal with anything queer related or queer incidents or anything that was recorded for actually an 150 year gap, well 60 year gap between this period uh, and basically the Canadian Confederation. And in the Canadian Confederation they actually agreed that homosexuality should be punishable by up to 14 years in prison. So not by death but by 14 years in prison, like that's much better. And so here's where the records and kind of the really interesting part of the queer spaces in Montreal start to pick up. So as Canada becomes more populated, obviously there's a bunch more gay people, a bunch more lesbians, a bunch more trans people, a bunch more queer people in general, and a lot of newspaper clippings from kind of this early post-Confederation period clearly indicated that there's this one specific park in Montreal, and now it's kind of like a mix between a park and a historical monument where you can see like the old, I think it's like the city walls or something like that, but it's called the Champ de Mars, and it was actually a cruising ground for gay men. And it was probably one of the first queer spaces in North America in terms of recorded queer spaces. And just to give a little bit of a segue about cruising grounds. So cruising grounds, if you're unfamiliar with them, they're basically public areas where gay men uh, would go to meet other gay men and have sex. Usually it is in things like parks. So uh, for instance, Champ de Mouse in Montreal, but also as we'll learn later, Montreal Park at the top of the mountain, um, that actually used to be a cruising ground as well. The main reason that cruising grounds kind of came about was the fact that being a homosexual or being gay was so stigmatized and so um, dangerous that it really was kind of the secretive nature um, that led people to these public areas to seek out other men to have sex with because that's literally all that was there. So this Champ Park was frequented probably for about a decade and a half until around 1883 and at some point the cruise, the main cruising grounds of Montreal moved to the much larger Montreal Park and there were a series of trails that were kind of built in the 1870s and that basically allowed it to be easier to navigate. It wasn't just a straight up it wasn't just a straight up forest anymore. So you could basically go there, meet other men um, without attracting basically any police attention or any attention just in general. It was essentially just a forest. So now that brings us to like probably one of the most interesting stories in this entire podcast. The first recorded like gay establishment or like a real physical bounded queer space in North America was actually here in Montreal and it was Montrealer Moise Tellier's Apple and Cake Shop, quite the secretive name. This shop was located on Craig Street, which is now renamed to Saint Antoine, and it was active around 1869. That's kind of the best guess that historians have found. 
Um, but the building was actually demolished as part of the construction of a highway that basically cut through downtown Montreal. But I have included a link in the description of this episode. If you want to see, you can kind of see it in this picture of what the shop looked like back in the 1870s. But basically, the main thing is that men would meet in this shop, and it was directly across from the Champ de Mouse cruising ground, to basically meet and have sex. And the full extent to which, like, this is true is kind of murky as well, just because it was so long ago and it was so such a stigmatized topic to even speak about. The news clipping that I'm about to read from the Montreal Star's newspaper, it kind of alludes to some type of homosexual activity going on in this shop, but we really aren't sure if this just means that Mr. Tellier, Mr. Tellier was, you know, caught having sex with a man, or if there is some type of actual establishment and meeting place going on here. Um, but so like I said, Mr. Tellier actually got busted, uh, and on June 8th, the Montreal, the Montreal Star newspaper, which is a now defunct uh, newspaper, wrote a little kind of expose that would basically put any modern tabloid to shame. Uh, so I'm just going to read it now. Yesterday morning, an old man of 60 named Moisey Tellier was brought before the recorder, charged with indecent assault on a constable. Tellier lives at 477 Craig Street, the same premises occupied by James Butler of the Britannia Saloon, Dr. Perrault, and several other respectable citizens. Tellier's business is nominally to keep a small shop for apples, cakes, and similar trifles, but the business is only a cloak for the commissions that rival Sodom and Gomorrah. A house of prostitution were indeed decent compared to this den. It has been watched for some time past by the police, and we regret, for the credit of our city and humanity, to say that several respectable citizens have been found frequenting it and evidently practicing abominations. When I was reading this, I couldn't get out of my mind how unbelievably extra this is. A cloak for the commission of crimes that rival Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah are basically these biblical cities that were destroyed with fire and brimstone because it was suspected that they were basically filled with gay men. I mean, this is so dramatic. Like, it's so dramatic, it, but it really is actually pretty insightful as well, and kind of on a more serious note, it provides a pretty valuable look at how homosexuality was viewed at the, t at the time. So basically, the worst of the worst of crimes, abominations, a house of prostitution were indeed decent compared to this den. So let's fast forward another 20 years and we actually get to uh, the city's oldest bathhouse, which opened in 1914. So shout out to Bain Colonial or Colonial Baths. And again, if you're straight or if you're a lesbian or you have no idea what a bathhouse is, a bathhouse is basically like, I don't know, like the ones in Montreal are like three or four floors. They're basically like this think like Roman baths, but modern, I guess. So like they have literal saunas, but then they also have private rooms, locker rooms, stuff like that, swimming pools, jacuzzis, showers. In essence, it's basically where men go to have sex with other men in a somewhat private, somewhat public setting. So kind of, this isn't necessarily queer related or queer space related, but a pretty important part of North American queer history was when Elsa Gidlow and Roswell George Mills launched uh, Les Mouches Fantastiques, which means the Fantastic Flies, which was a mimeographed, so it's kind of like a cheaper printing press underground magazine, which is actually known as the first LGBT publication in North American history. And it was published between 1918 and 1920 here in Montreal, but it was discontinued when the founders moved to New York City. Again, there's kind of a gap in the history, really, of queer spaces until the post-World War II era, 
which saw the real birth of queer spaces, uh, especially in North American port cities with soldiers returning from the war. And so that kind of inspired a lot of these soldiers, but also a lot of people and kind of the changing attitudes of the time more generally to basically open up gay bars, gay areas that were still kind of underground. Uh, so in Montreal specifically, it was actually, I didn't know this when I first researched this, but there was kind of like three main gay villages in Montreal. So the first one kind of started in uh, the downtown area, so mainly on Peel and Stanley. Probably one of the most famous bars was called The Downbeat. Its address was 1422 Peel. It is now a parking lot next to a Mexican restaurant. But this kind of included the bar's infamous Tropical Room, which is probably uh, one of the most famous and important queer spaces in kind of the Montreal uh, area around that time. But the first actual village in Montreal, which really wasn't a village at all, like I said, emerged in the downtown area around Peel and Stanley and St. Catharines uh, between the 20s and the 50s. It really, really did start to establish it, uh, itself after World War II, though. And so, for instance, uh, Dominion Square at the corner of René Levesque and Peel, and it was actually another cruising around that kind of arose after this uh, post-war time. And there was a tavern across the street called the Dominion Square Tavern that was right across the street from the park. It was met at, or it was known as a place where gay men could meet as well. Kind of another one of those gay bars, but very, very underground. Uh, and the pub actually does still exist, but uh, it's not really a gay space anymore. It's much more of a and like an actual restaurant. And the downtown village really started to establish itself in the 60s. A lot of gay-owned businesses started to own up, uh, but it was still relatively marginal and discreet, and it mainly focused on male-focused venues. So obviously there are no actual services for queer people, because at that time it was like as if queer people need any type of specialized services. But this kind of downtown area, these gay venues that are still kind of underground, still kind of discreet, uh, remained the center of queer life in Montreal until the late 70s. So another kind of downtown village, or I guess a mini village, uh, that kind of arose during this time, kind of in the mid-70s, late 60s, kind of around that period, was an area called the Main, which was essentially the red light district of Montreal. So a lot of sex work, a lot of burlesque shows, a lot of strip clubs, and the businesses that were really catered towards queer people mainly consisted of a lot of bars that featured a lot of drag shows. In this area, it was mainly just all bars. And there's one specific venue that still exists called Le Café Cléopatra, which is probably one of the first spaces that like, even had some hint of acceptance towards trans people in Montreal. So just to clarify before I go into a brief segue about lesbian and queer, woman, queer women-focused spaces, I just want to say that lesbian perceptions of urban space are inherently different than how queer men perceive space. So I've learned this throughout my studies at McGill. So for instance, a lot of geographers and academics have focused how there are obviously restrictions in place on how lesbians occupy space and how they can create queer spaces, mainly due to uh, male aggression and wage discrimination, so essentially sexism coupled with the homophobia, which actually leaves lesbian women less likely to concentrate in urban space in the same outwardly visible ways associated with gay male urban spaces. So just keep that in mind that for queer women especially, it's much harder to be a visible queer woman and to have a visible queer space dedicated for queer women. Just to give you a little bit of a pretense, in Montreal there's basically no queer women's 
specific bars or clubs or anything like that. Um, they are essentially all male-focused or mixed sexualities, but mainly male-focused. But just to give you a little bit more of a history about the lesbian spaces, just because I've been focusing so much on the male spaces, Julia A. Podmore is an academic who wrote a little bit about the history of lesbian bars and cafes, and she says that approximately 30 bars cafe and cafes and four bookstores and non-community spaces existed for lesbians between 1973 and 1995. Uh, but like I said, there's basically none now. And in the 1950s, the heart of the lesbian community life did focus in the red light district, like I said previously, um, especially the Pont de Paris Cabaret. But in the late 1960s, uh, there was something called the Babyface Disco, which was actually started by an ex-wrestler whose name was Babyface, who wanted to basically start a disco. And she was lesbian, and it was actually the first lesbians only bar. And it opened in what is now the Simon de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia, so right downtown. In the 1970s, a lot of mixed gay and lesbian clubs started to open up, uh, such as the Limelight Disco and the Glass. And in the 80s, it was kind of like the golden age. It's considered the golden age of lesbian bars in Montreal. Um, they were women-owned, women-operated, op uh, and for women only. And these included, just get ready, there's some really, really great names. The Labris, Lilith, and Lexit, which were also accompanied by a lot of lesbian bookstores, cafes, community organizations, and of course people, lesbian households, uh, in the Plateau area of Montreal. So out of downtown, uh, in a little bit of a cheaper area at the time, but it was actually kind of a real lesbian neighborhood. So you know how people say, oh, the gayborhood or the, vi the gay village? There was actually kind of a lesbian village in Montreal in the 80s, leading up to the beginning of the 90s. In the 90s, gentrification started to happen in the plateau, which led to a lot of lesbian bars on Saint-Denis to close down. And they actually moved to the real village, which we'll get to next, the village that is, exists now on St. Katz, with actually some even more great names like Taboo, Klitz, spelled K-L-Y-T-Z, and the G-Spot, as well as Magnolia. And unfortunately, most of these spots were not open for very long, and when they closed, the lesbian and queer social scene saw kind of the rise of women's nights in like traditionally male queer uh, queer spaces. So like a gay club might have a lesbian night, something like that. But really there were no lesbian women or queer women specific venues at this time in the Montreal area. It really did stop in the 90s. Between the basically the 70s and the 90s, uh, there was this huge transition in the queer spaces in Montreal. So this is actually taken from the Montreal Pride website, so Fierté Montréal. And essentially, as part of an attempt to clean up the city prior to the 1976 Olympics, the homophobic mayor Jean Drapeau, I don't know why we have a park named after him, he was awful for the city, uh, he convened a quote-unquote public morality program because I am an immoral gay man aimed at gay and lesbian establishments as well as establishments that sex workers frequented, including trans sex workers. So the first part, this is actually ridiculous, but the first part of his anti-queer policies is he ordered that thousands of trees be cut down in the Montreal, air, uh, Montreal Park so that men couldn't cruise for sex beneath the foliage of the trees. Absolutely ridiculous. And then the kind of more serious and violent public morality program started to take place. 
So the first one was in February of 1975. Uh, there was a raid on a sauna or a bathhouse called the Aquarius Sauna. And just a few months after that, the same sauna was firebombed and three people died. This is hard for me to read. Two of the three were buried in Popper's Field in the Montreal NDG Cemetery in anonymous graves because their bodies were never identified or claimed by their families. From the 14th to the 21st of March in 1976, the Sana Neptune, the Tochel d'Or, the Studio One, the Stork Club, and Jilly's, among other bars and venues, were raided, fined, and or closed under dubious charges of sexual deviancy or anything related to that. There was a law in this time that was pretty common across all North American cities where if you didn't have three pieces of gender-specific clothing on you, you could be arrested. And those things, like, for a woman would be bra, panties, and, like, pantyhose or something like that. So pretty ridiculous. Uh, but this actual arrest period for the week between the 14th and the 21st of March 1976, hundreds of people were arrested, and this was the largest mass arrest in Quebec since the 1970 October crisis. And during these raids, cops would arrest basically everyone present after bursting in with machine guns and cameras. They threatened to call employers of the men and women they arrested and threatened to publish their names in Montreal's daily newspapers. But the one thing is, is that they always got pictures of the people that were arrested, whether to use that as blackmail or use it as any type of information against the people that were arrested. And these riots really did go on even till after the Olympics in 1976. And it reached a real tipping point in October of 1977, what is kind of called Montreal's first Stonewall. There's kind of two Stonewall-esque moments for Montreal. Uh, so the first one took the form of a massive raid on two clubs called Mystique and Trax. I think that's how you say it. My French accent, I try my best. 144 men were arrested, but 2,000 people showed up to the protest at the site the day after. And really, activists quickly went to work using this momentum and this protest that was really well covered by media to basically successfully advocate for a bill called Bill 88 that became law by the December of the same year, so only two months. And it made Quebec the second jurisdiction in the world after Denmark to forbid discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. So this was a pretty landmark moment for queer rights in Canada. And this kind of led to a more generalized, I don't want to say acceptance, but kind of the idea that queer people exist, because it was still at this point this kind of really underground, forbidden topic. But this kind of did push it into a mainstream media, uh, mainstream, ex not acceptance again, but mainstream knowledge of queer people, especially in Montreal. And so around this time as well, in the early 80s, the Le Village Gay, as we know it today, started to develop with some bars opening up along St. Cat's between Barry and Papineau. And it really did start to establish itself after the, something that geographers and demographers called the Great Gay mi Migration, which between basically the 60s and the 90s, up until even the early 2000s, that saw queer people from rural areas around North America move into cities en masse basically as safe havens. And the transition between the downtown gay village and the village as we know it now happened around in the mid 80s as more bars started to open up in the gay village that we know it on St. Cat's, including the strip bar Les Deux Heures, the Normandie, the, Nor 
the Normandie Tavern and Cox, spelt K-O-X, <laughs> don't get me wrong, K-O-X, which moved from, uh, which actually moved from down the downtown area to uh, St. Cats and Pennet, and the Bar Max opened close by and close to Baudry Metro Station, which basically made it easier to facilitate people coming to the village and people leaving the village as well. But one of the last bars in the downtown village called Bud's closed down after another police raid that basically scared away its remaining clientele. And by 1985, there were barely no gay establishments left in the downtown West End. There were some still remaining in the red light district, but not really. So the village that we know today was originally known as Le Village de l'Est, which was coined by the owners of the... I'm still, I'm still gonna laugh. By the owners of the bar slash club Cox, um, the owners had actually previously lived in New York City, and they basically wanted to transplant the queer, uh, the strong, vibrant queer community that they saw uh, in the East Village in Manhattan and the West Village as well, and basically transplant some type of that aspect to Montreal. And the village really expanded during the 90s to include a large part of Amherst Street, which used to be a bunch of antique shops. There still are a lot of antique shops there, but also a lot of gay venues and queer venues now as well. And really during the 90s, the village did become a really well-established and actually a real place, and it gained political recognition and acceptance. And the area got extremely popular, and around this time, moving towards the late 90s, the area did start to gentrify, so a lot of new condo buildings, new apartments, new shops that were still kind of geared towards queer people, but they did also appeal to a straight and cis audience as well. But something that's really important is that during the 90s, the police raids didn't stop. So kind of the second Stonewall-esque moment that was probably one of the most important, probably the most important uh, queer moment in Montreal's history and maybe even Quebec's history as well, happened on July 15th of 1990, when a group of Montreal police officers violently raided a party called Sex Garage, which was basically kind of like a, I guess you could call it a circuit party back then uh, in old Montreal. And 400 gay, lesbian, and transgender attendees of this party were taunted, brutalized, and arrested while trying to leave the party. And this sparked a huge protest in Montreal that actually started on the same night of the party and the night following. And it included a sit-in in front of the Baudry metro station and later a kiss-in in front of the SPVM police station 25 which was intended to pressure police into addressing the police brutality of queer people that happened the night before, but it actually resulted in even greater brutality amongst the people that were at the kiss-in. And there's some photographs that were captured of this kiss-in and the brutality that followed. Obviously, content warning, it is pretty violent and pretty scary. And you can find the link of that in the description of this podcast. So all of this violence and the protests Again, kind of like the what happened before with the Bill 88, it actually did move the queer rights movement in Montreal and Quebec forward. So the pr- police brutality and just the violence and the discrimination that queer people faced after the sex garage party and the bust and the protest that followed led to an investigation and a series of recommendations by the Human Rights Commission. And it the pro- activists that protested afterwards actually established 
the first pride parades in Montreal called Diversité and La Table de Concertation des Gays et, Lesbi et Lesbiennes du Grand Montréal, which were basically two activist organizations that were kind of born out of these protests, very, very similar to the Gay Liberation Front that was born out of the uh, Stonewall riots in New York City. The raids did continue in the 90s, and so, for instance, Cox shut down in 1994 due to a police raid, and that basically brings us to where we are now. Uh, the, village, the Montreal Village is the largest physical gay village in North America, but it does look very different from even 20 years ago. So a lot of condo developments and gentrification, which is pretty common across all North American inner city areas. But just to leave you off with some questions, are gay villages and other queer spaces in jeopardy? What does a modern queer space look like? Can gentrification and queer space be reconciled in some way? Stay tuned for next week's episode as we delve into the future of queer spaces. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queer Here, Queer There. As always, feel free to reach out with any comments, suggestions, or if you just want to gossip. The podcast email is qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. So again, that's qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. But also feel free to message me on Instagram at nopo.png or follow me on Twitter at noahdpowers. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by Noah Powers with support from the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. The cover art for this podcast was designed and painted by my extremely talented friend, Morgan Davis, and you can find more of her work on her Instagram at morgandavisart and her Redbubble, both of which are linked in the description of this podcast. Queer Here, Queer There would like to acknowledge the generous support of Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for funding this project through their Rising Youth Grant. The music for this podcast is Sunset by ESCP, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.